Uh, when's the last time you played the game Hot Potato? 25 years ago? Yeah, 10 years ago. Uh, it's probably been a while. And I was talking with Julie, you know, as I was, you know, reading the passage and kind of preparing for the message here. It's like, a game that the kids would really enjoy that we don't really play very much is Hot Potato. Like, they would love that. That would be so much fun for them, you know? And, and we could add, like, fun stuff to it where there's a timer. You need to have a timer, and then maybe we'll have something explode because then they'll definitely want to do it. Uh, and then maybe the person holding it, they got to do something crazy, you know? So the brother would have to watch another brother do something or watch mom and dad do something. Like, we could make it really fun. Uh, and the reason why, like, I think about that and that comes to, you know, my mind is because, you know, in this passage, they're treating the Ark of the Covenant. Everybody say Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant is getting treated like a hot potato. It's getting passed, like, all over the place. So if you missed a couple of weeks ago, I would strongly encourage you to listen online. A couple of weeks ago, I you know we talked about how there was this excitement for God. They're super worked up, very excited about God. And uh, they lost, they lost big, and they lost everything. So we talked about, man, like, what is the deal with that? And then we talked about how there's an excitement about God that can lead to total failure. And that, what that helps us do, that helps to give us a better understanding of how to guard against hyped-up emotionalism. Um, but yet also not be afraid to be excited when God gets a hold of our hearts. So you missed all that. It's a couple weeks ago. Um, what happened is they got defeated, like I said. The Ark of the Covenant, it got captured. And the Ark of the Covenant is basically, that's a symbol of God's presence. Say God's presence. Yeah, so the Ark of the Covenant is a symbol of God's presence. That's not something we have now. New Testament, Jesus Christ has come. He died on the cross for our sins. For those that accept Jesus Christ into their lives, and they say, Father, I accept what Jesus did for me. I'm living for you. He already resides in the person. So his presence is with every believer. And the kind of crazy thing is, his presence is with every believer. It's also around every believer. So I don't really know how that works, but that's the way it's described. So it's in all believers all over the globe that believe in Jesus Christ and who he is, and they give their lives to follow after him. His presence rests in them. That's why it's so confusing to, like, the rest of the world where it doesn't rest in them. They're like, they say that... God rests in them, but they act just like I do, and they talk just like me, and they do the same things. That's weird. <laughs> That's what gets to be very confusing, right? Like, there should be marks in our life that are just uniquely different because God lives in us. So God lives in the believer, so his presence is with the believer everywhere. It's with the church, for sure. Back then, it was just with the ark. Wherever the ark was, his presence was. And typically, where the ark was, his presence was, and there was favor. And when they lost, the Philistines, say Philistines, the Philistines, um, they were very impressed with themselves. They were very happy about it. And what they did is they took the ark. They took it, and they took a whole bunch of stuff that belonged to Israel because uh, they had a huge, really two huge victories. And that's where we pick up. Um, verse 1, let's check it out. It says, after the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. It says, then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple, and they set it beside uh, Dagon. 
So a couple things, right? So they captured it. From who? The Philistines, right? They, see, there's a lot of names in there. That's why I ask like, these questions. Because it just turns into alphabet soup in your brain. So I'm just trying to help out. Okay? So it was captured from the Philistines. All right? And uh, they took it to what place? Ebenezer, right? And then it went to Ashdod, right? And then they put it, like they said, uh, into some guy's temple. And his name was Dagon, right? So, basically... In their mind and their thinking back then is like, basically, whenever you went out to war and you went out to battle, the thinking back then was, listen, if you won, it was because your God was superior. If you lost, it was because your God was inferior. Um, kind of, a lot of people kind of think like that today. Something bad happens to you. Uh, it's because either the devil did it or God's mad at you. Uh, something good, and ha- you know, the way people judge good is very interesting. But if something good happens to you, then it was definitely from God. There's a lot of problems with that. Because really, only one person gets to define good and bad, and that's the one that sits on the throne that knows everything and that watches all things. When we're left to our own judgment, that's when we get into problems. How many people know that whenever you make a judgment call and you don't have all the facts nor know all the facts, you're in bad territory? Right? Amen on that? So judging is just like so dangerous. Um, so these guys were like, hey, listen. So we won. Philistines won. Dagon, obviously the God. Israel lost. Their God, he is the loser. We are supreme. So then their thinking was, hey, listen, we're going to take like their Ark of the Covenant, and that's like their trophy. So we're going to put it in our place. They can hang out with our God, and that's kind of like a trophy of who we got. So that's your first fill in the blank. Just one quick observation. Uh, Israel, first fill in the blank. Israel was defeated because of disobedience, not inferiority. So Israel was defeated because of disobedience, not because of inferiority. Like that's what they went wrong in their mind. So they're thinking, hey, listen, we beat them because Dagon is better and bigger than Yahweh. And they misinterpreted the situation. And I think most of us know that we don't really know who God is and we're not close to his heart. If we just see a situation happen, um, things get stolen from us, people hurt us, uh, we lose money on something, uh, we're lonely, whatever it is. When these things transpire, we can tend to look at, look at those uh, situations, and we can say, oh man, like, um, God's not happy with me. God's angry with me. Like, there's like a serious problem, you know, going on here. When that might be the case, but if somebody's really just a repentful, humble Christian seeking after God, that's totally not the case. He could be doing everything right and still those things happen. So to look at situations and then determine who God is is a problem. To look at situations and circumstances and then determine who God is and his goodness, that's a problem. Where, do you, where should we go if we want to know who God is, his goodness and his character? Where do we go? 
You got it. That word right there. We go to his word to figure out who he is and what he's like. And to get an illustration or a picture, the place we go is we go to the cross. That's where we know how God feels about us. Because at the cross, he gave up his son and he said, listen, it's worth it to give up my son to have my children back. So, if you can and if it's possible, do not let your circumstances determine who God is or how good he is. That's a really hard one. That's why you really need your church family. And you really need to stay on your word. Like when we're just doing life by ourselves and finding God in the woods occasionally, it like doesn't really get it done. We need to fellowship and community and do life together. Because there are some circumstances that are real, that are difficult, that are hard, that have no answers. In fact, it looks the total opposite from what we even read sometimes. It can look the total opposite. And that's when God is calling us to say, listen, have faith in who I am. Stand firm in that. Get other people around you to help bolster you up because it's going to be okay. So it's interesting to me how, you know, the Philistines, you know, they saw this thing, you know, happen. They're like, hey, our God is the best. And we got the trophy for it. And it's like, ah, that wasn't the situation. They're disobedient. They're just flat out disobedient. And in the Old Testament, disobedience like, wasn't a good thing. You got judged pretty quick for it. And I go like this because it's like a, bat, a big spank right away real fast. In the New Testament, disobedience, it still comes with a cost, but a lot of times it's less harsh and it's less harsh and less immediate. And honestly, in the New Testament, if somebody is a believer, a lot of times it's out of discipline. So you have these two D's going on. You've got disobedience and you have discipline. Are you with me? They both feel the same. They both don't feel good. Both don't like it. They're both very confusing. Flat out disobedience, that will definitely get us in trouble with God as it got Israel in trouble with God. Discipline it's very different. Discipline at its core. At its core, discipline is not just you whack somebody until they get it right. And for a lot of us, like that's the way discipline like has been known and is like people are familiar with. And 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 unfortunately that's a that's a wrong way to look at it. It's not that's not it. Discipline at its core, discipline at its core tries to get the individual or individuals or the people to come alongside like what's true and good and it tries to, at the end, it has a redemptive holding up preserving quality to it. You with me on this? Right, so that's like what discipline does. So when I'm disciplining my kids, Jaren and Judson, like I'm not doing it so I just want them to do the right thing and think the right way. If that's me and Julie's approach, we are going to be utter failures. Complete failures. We're going to do awesome if we can convince our little guys the value, the value, 
the freedom and the amazing amount of success that can come from doing things the right way. If they can buy into that, we're doing really good. And that should really guide our discipline. So when, you know, they're whacking each other, doing whatever they're doing, you know, they'll be held accountable for stuff. But it has to happen in a way to where there's a way of like, hey, listen, it would be much better to go this way because it's really going to help you. And let me show you what that looks like. You with me? So discipline, it helps to hold up. It helps to reinforce. And most times, it's also modeled out by the person giving the discipline. Not just telling them and preaching at somebody. It doesn't do anything. So we're good? All right. So Israel was defeated because of disobedience. And they got some harsh judgment because of it. They were defeated because of disobedience, not because of... Yeah, it's not like God was inferior. And then we're going to see what, how, why we're saying that. Verse 2. Um, they said it beside Dagon. Verse 3. I listened to this message one time. Um, was it, I, forget, I forget where I heard it. But um, he, was, uh, he was a Mexican guy, and he was like preaching on this passage. And powerful guy. He, he, he wasn't really great with the English language. Super thick Mexican accent. He, couldn't, he actually couldn't even really read very well. So every time this come up, he's calling Dagon Dragon. <laughs> so like one of the, one of the pastors like went up to him after the message, like, hey, that doesn't say dragon. <laughs> and it, you know, they had like a whole conversation. It was pretty funny, but anyways, it just made me think of it. All right, so dragon, dagon, does it really matter? Not really. All right. Um... So when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, um, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they put the trophy in there, thinking they're pretty good, you know, doing all right. They wake up, Dagon fell off, face down, in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Tell me that's not some symbolism of something. You know, like he could have been falling in any other way and kind of any other position. He's like fall down prostrate. Every time I read that, I think of that song like uh, Our God is Greater song. Like there's one that's supreme. So here's what they did. It's not like they said, hmm, I wonder why. Or like, what's with our Dagon? Or like, it's not like... There's none of that going on. So here's what they did. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. You know you're in trouble when you have to pick up your God, put him back together, (laughs) hang him back up. (laughs) Really? Uh Uh-huh. Says, but the so round two. But the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off, and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why, to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step onto the threshold. This is kind of nuts, right? So morning number two, 
he falls down, he breaks in pieces. And it says that, what, his arms and his hands lay on the threshold, right? So it just looks even worse. And then what they do, it's pretty interesting, what they do is they say, like we just read, they said, hey, listen, the threshold, it's sacred because Ashdod's hands and arms fell on it, so we never step on it. So they just, you know, like, like that superstitious stuff, you know, that people do, like superstitions, like it's nonsense, right? Amen? It's nonsense. So like, cross the path of a black cat. Doesn't matter. Go to the dump and smash mirrors. It's actually awesome. And nothing bad happens. Walk under a ladder. Depends who's up there. You could kick it, but whatever, right? Like this stuff is not bad. Doesn't matter. But they formed the superstition because Dagon, his arms and his hands were on the threshold. They're like, oh, so then they never ever stepped on it. As if the threshold is now sacred or had anything to do with anything. So they created like excuses for their God like to make it work that they were okay with. And that's just like, is kind of crazy to me. Isn't that kind of weird to you? It's like, man, like, why wouldn't they just consider what is actually happening? This is a second fill in the blank. They rejected despite the evidence. So that's number two in here. They rejected despite the evidence. The evidence was clear cut, it was there. They still rejected it. This is when, like, apologetics and, like, arguing for God, like, kind of loses its place. You could present a lot of times a lot of evidence, a lot of really good arguments about who God is, about where the Bible came from, all these things. And I think that we should be wise and knowledgeable on that. I think it'd be kind of silly to, like, commit your life to faith in God and then not know, like, where anything about God came from. I think that's kind of strange. Who does that? At the same time, our faith should not consist in how good of an argument we can put together. But of course, we want to have stuff to be able to converse and interact with people. So the evidence was plenty for them, just like we're going to be in a world and around people and around situations. We're going to have maybe a lot, maybe we'll be in a conversation where we actually are doing a pretty good job and we're providing a lot of evidence like having a pretty good day. Like remember some verses, remember some things, and like people could still absolutely reject it despite the evidence. The question is why? And I'll give you probably the answer. The answer most likely probably is nobody, none of us, wants to completely transform and rearrange our lives to the truth. We just don't want to. I mean, we just don't want to. This is why you could tell people to boo in the face something they shouldn't do. If they want to do it, like, they're going to do it. Let me say it another way. If somebody won't do something just because uh, of the consequence, we got a problem. Like, if I won't do something just because of the consequence... Like, there's a problem there. If my kids won't do something just because of the consequence they might get from mom or dad, well, guess what? They're just going to figure out a time to do it. Mom and dad aren't around. That's just all that they'll do. And that's a lot, a lot of us has done. Well, I'll still get my thing, and I'll still do it my way, but it's just, 
people won't know. I'll just make it happen. So there's just things that we do, right? We're not proud of it, but that's just what happens. That's the reality, right? So that's why it's so important. You get the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' most popular sermon, you know, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and it's in Luke, and it's all about purity of heart. Because at the end of the day, you know, consequences shouldn't be the thing that, that like, forms and shapes us. What should be forming and shaping us is the spirit that lives inside of us and, like, transforms us. It says, man, there's absolutely no value in holding on to unforgiveness towards that person. Absolutely not. Don't do it. Like, do everything you can to live in forgiveness towards that individual. And like, you know, we're, you know, we're going to be bitter or mad. And, and, some, and a lot of people have actually some like, pretty good reasons to be. I mean, there's like, you know, obviously real things that happen to people. That's when Christianity like really meets like reality. So how real is somebody's faith? You know what I mean? We're going to be presented with opportunities to let purity of heart really guide us and not just the consequence if we're going to get caught or if somebody's going to know. So they rejected despite the evidence. So point being, you could have lots of evidence. People are still going to reject because they don't really want to be accountable to God. But here's the good news, guys. Good news. If we've truly given our lives over to Jesus Christ, and he's truly the Lord of our life, and we follow him the best we can, day in and day out, and we live in his forgiveness, we live in his compassion, we live in his grace, that is the strongest piece of evidence that God is real, that he answers prayers, that he is who he says he is. And we don't have to point to Dagon in his temple some 3,000 years ago. To say, no, actually, earlier this week, I was praying for this thing, and I'd been praying for this thing, and God spoke to my heart on this, and I just... All the evidence stuff, like, academically goes out the window. And I want to tell you this truth. I've grown up in it, and a lot of you have grown up in it. We're talking evangelism and telling others about Jesus. The best way to do that is just share people, share to people what God is actually doing in our lives currently. That is the best evangelism you could ever do. The worst evangelism we could ever do is tell people what we think we need to tell them but have no real relationship with God happening in the moment. Useless. And people see right through it. And then we're going to run out of stuff to say. Like, oh, what was that thing I was supposed to remember? Oh, you know, it's like, oh, you're going to rack your brain. How about you just tell them just like how vibrant and alive like your relationship is with God and like what he's doing? Or better yet, tell them how you're crumbling right now, but you're still trying to hold on that he's good and true. Let's do some evangelism that way. To a real God where we're not the center of the story, he is. So evidence, ah, let's be in real relationship day in and day out. I'll tell you what my father told me this morning. Or I'll just tell you about what my father answered that I've been praying about or things that I'm bringing before him. These are the things, right, that will help us shine brightly and be a light. Not something that God said to us 20 years ago or showed us way back when, something current, current, current. Because God is in today, 
He knows who we are, and he's moving right now. Amen? Amen. All right, let's keep rolling. How much time we got? Oh, jeez. We're not getting through all this, but sorry. All right. Um, let's see here. Where did we leave off? What verse? Oh, yeah. Verse 5 we finished. Then we're in verse 6. So here we go. It says, The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. So that's where it currently is, correct? He brought, so God brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. Um, and if you look in your Bible, it's just kind of a footnote. Um, you know, no, nobody really knows exactly what these tumors are. It describes like rats and things being in the land. People got like these things on their bodies. Like it was, it was pretty nasty, whatever it was. It was kind of gross. Um, and it's interesting that the devil didn't do it like God was doing it. Is that interesting? Yeah. Verse 7. When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon our God. So they all became Christians. No. no. You'd think that's what they would do. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? How about believing it? Uh, They answered, Have the ark of the God of Israel move to Gath. So they moved the Ark of the God of Israel. So they moved it somewhere else. But after they moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. So it went to Gath. Now we're in Ekron. This thing, hot potato, baby. Right? As the Ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with uh, panic. God's hand was very heavy upon it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. Uh, bullet point number three here. God's abilities are not tied to location. God's abilities are not tied to location. So they did hot potato with the ark, hoping that like maybe, maybe if the God is in a different place, he won't be as powerful. Or maybe he'll, like, he'll, he'll be less sort of a problem if he's in another place. God is trying to send the message very loud and clear, I am the God the only God, the true God. You guys are wasting your time with Dagon. It's like so loud and clear. But they they don't want to pay attention or listen to it. just don't want to. So God's abilities are not tied to location. So it says, chapter 6, it says, When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, If we turn the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it away empty, but by all means send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed, and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. 
Interesting. So say, hey, listen, obviously this thing's a problem for us. People are dying. People are getting sick. We got to get it out of here. Like, what do we do? So then the leader said, well, here's what we got to do. Um, we have to, like, send it away and send, like, an offering with it and, like, appease the God of the Israels. Basically, that's their way of saying sorry. You're not a trophy. We can't handle you. We don't know what happened in the battle, but obviously you can't stay where we are. Because where we are and where you are, it don't mix. And how many people know that when God is where he is and he shows up to do what he does, other stuff can't stay? Amen. Amen. Just can't. Just got to move out. Sometimes it's people. Sometimes it's music. Sometimes it's whatever. Stuff just moves out. Old ways of thinking, whatever it is. So the Philistines ask, what guilt offering should we give? This is kind of like a weird thing that they come up with, but this is what they come up with. Five gold tumors, five gold rats, according to the number of Philistine rulers, uh, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country and pay honor to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? Interesting that they know about that story. When he treated them harshly. Did I not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows. So this is interesting, and this is what we're going to close with. Uh, Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart, and in a chest beside it, put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us and that it happened to us by chance. So, so they did this. They took two such cows, hitched them to the cart, penned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart, and along with it, the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up toward Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. And when the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley... And when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The ark came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood for the cart, sacrificed the cows, the burnt offering. The Levites took it down, right? Then they just have a really great time. So, last point here I want to just share with you. We're not going to get to five. We're just going to stop at four. Um, Here's the fill-in for it. They created a situation where only God could do it. They created a situation where only God could do it. Now, I'm with you kind of up until this point. Basically, you have this group of people that have no idea who God or Yahweh is. They try and figure out all these ways to like make it work, and they all suck, and like they're losing. Right? It's basically what's happening. So, I like this part of them, though. This is interesting to me, and honestly, like, this is a part that I want to integrate into my life, and then I feel like God wants his believers to integrate into their lives. So if there's any lesson really to be learned, there could be some other ones that we talked about for sure. This one might be pretty high up on the list too. 
their idea was, hey, listen, we're going to make all these like gold you know, rats and have all this, these objects, put it in there, send it back. And here's the way we're going to do it. The way we're going to do it is we're going to set it up so that this could only be like done if God did it. In the natural, it really shouldn't happen. So they decided to get, take two cows who just gave birth, had baby cows, had cows. They removed them from the cows. They've never been yoked before either. So they've never like had yokes. And for animals to have yokes, like, they needed some practice to kind of work with it, to see how they move, and so you could get somewhere. Otherwise, they just like end up in a circle. They kick each other. It's just it's a whole nightmare. So they said, hey, listen, we're going to take these two cows, never been yoked, and they just had babies. And what we're going to do is, right, we're going to strap on the ark there. And in the natural, they should really go towards their young because that's where they want to be. Plus, they've never had a yoke on before. But they said, hey, listen, if they just start heading up the road to Beth Shemesh, this thing must have been from God like the whole time. They weren't convinced. For some reason, they weren't convinced yet that it was from God. But they said, hey, listen, if that happens, then it definitely must have been from God, like he's pleased with us, and like that's where the ark needs to be. And sure enough, like that's what happens. It says they put the cows on there, strapped them up, put the ark on. It says they start lowing. They didn't turn to the right or to the left, and they just whoosh, right to Beth Shemesh. In the natural, they definitely should not have done that. No animal is going to leave their young like Especially cows, they're not going to leave their young like that. And if they've never been yoked, they're not going to turn not to the right nor to the left. So essentially what they did is they created a situation to where only God could make it happen. There are way too many, and I've done it myself, and I'm trying not to do it anymore, but there's way too many Christians where we set up situations in our lives to where we still got something if God doesn't show up. I'm saying, like, there's seasons sometimes. This is not like an everyday thing. There's seasons, there's times in life where God is calling us to go above and beyond. And if he doesn't show up, it's going to dramatically hurt us and affect us. Like, it's going to be a problem if he doesn't show up. I don't know if you've ever trusted God, you know, like that in any way with anything. I would take a page out of their book and try it. And not just try to try it's sake. I would say be in relationship with him. And he's going to communicate things to your heart. He's going to say, hey, listen, I want you to invest in so-and-so. Well, I don't like them. Like, they don't like stuff with me. And da 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 He's going to say, man, just, like, go do it. Or, uh, honestly, a lot of times where God does this, he does this a lot with money. That's just, like, a big one. He does it a lot with money and finances. Because he really wants us to know that he's the provider. Because much of money is not just giving like when you have it. Like that's, that's just not it. It's sacrificially giving. Like when it hurts and we might not have it. That's when he says, hey, that's what's done in faith and that's what pleases me. Because now you're actually acknowledging that I really am your provider and like you're going to miss out if I don't give you something back. So God is going to call us and he's going to move our hearts into situations in life to where he's going to have us, he's going to put us into a situation where analytically in our brains, it's not a smart move. Because if it falls through, we are up that creek without a paddle. And then what? 
good question, and then what? I don't know. And sometimes God will want to put us there to where we get to a situation where it's like, there literally is no backup plan. Kind of just have to start over with something. I don't know. And I'm just, I'm telling you, and I'm encouraging your heart that God does these things, and it's very common. And be open to it. And I'm also telling you, if you choose to take him up on it, you are going to be so free and rejoice so much because then it's going to be like, oh my God, you are real. This actually is legit. You actually are who you say you are. You never get to that point when you always head yourself and create protection and safety. So I want to like take that page out of the book, you know, more often. And like, I mean, I'll tell you what, this church plant, as far as our family goes, it's like, oh my gosh. Like literally in so many ways, if God doesn't do just so many things in like so many ways, like we're just, we're literally gonna have to start all over. That's just the way it is. And on some days I'm like, and what? So what? We'll start over. And on other days I'm like, God, no, why would you do that? That's a horrible plan. Stupid. <laughs> but I'm telling you, like, he's going to move you to things in your life to where at some times, in some way, say, I'm calling you to do this. Yeah, but, 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 but. And you, they're probably all great questions. And he's purposely not giving you an answer. Because it's not about the answer, it's about the trust. All right, we made it to the finish line there. But I know God's doing a good work in this. And honestly, guys, like, you know, if we're going to be light and be impactful and really make a move in this community, which is what's on my heart, so what I want to do. Like, I want to make significant, I believe God wants to do that, significant, impactful moves of influence in this community. We're not going to get there by being excited. We're not going to get there by being super entertaining. We're not going to get there by having awesome programs. We're going to get there by transformed lives that know who Jesus is knows what it means to be in relationship with him and have tasted his goodness. And they really want other people to as well. And there's times in life where he just says, I'm calling you to get way out on this. I hope we do it. I hope we do it. So we ask God for an extra measure of boldness and strength. Sound good? All right. So let's stand and pray. And then we've got some good food downstairs for us. <clears throat> Father, I pray that you would fill myself and that you'd fill us with an extra measure of boldness and faith. I pray, Father, that you would fill our hearts with a reassurance that you are really good, Lord, that you are truly faithful, Father, and that we won't lose anything if we jump into the unknown with you. And I pray, Father, that you would guard hearts and minds from being super impulsive and and just doing things that are unwise and, and just reacting. But I pray, Father, if you put some things on people's hearts and minds, and you will, I pray, Lord, that each of us, Lord, that we'd prayerfully bring things before you. I pray, Lord, that we would also prayerfully involve others into the situation, mature voices of you and then we can move forward Lord. so Father I thank you that you're taking us 
to greater places in you, to greater levels. And Father, I pray, Lord, that that our people, Lord, our church family here, that we would be a people, Lord, um, that we wouldn't be afraid, God, to lay things on the line and go after you. We can be much more transformational, Lord, with stories and history of what you do and how you show up in the little things and in the small things. I thank you that you can be trusted. I thank you that there's no God like you. I thank you that there's no worldview like you, no wisdom like yours, and I pray that we would live like that's actually the case. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.